I had this consideration this with regards to the message today, whether or not to continue on with uh, with Romans with the with the Roman study, or to look at something particularly for Father's Day. And and I don't I don't usually break course, but at the same time, um, you know, this this year I found it worthwhile. I found it worth worth making this particular change um, because we are we seem to have a world today that has a real vacuum of of men and understanding what it is to be a man. Um, uh, men today don't know even their place. They, they don't know their position. They don't understand what role that they are to play. There's tremendous confusion with regards to what a man actually is. We're living in a world that degenerates, that denigrates man that puts him down. We have television commercials that continually show him as uh, some sort of a, a dimwit who needs the leading of a woman in order to get anything right. Um, we, we're seeing schoolboys in school having to stand up and apologise for being male. I mean, this is actually happening in our society today. And um, we have men that are becoming more and more effeminate and getting encouraged to be more and more effeminate. We've got makeup products being created for men's use um, rather than just for women. We're moving into a world that androgyny seems to be something that is um, becoming almost normal within a civilization. Um, I've mentioned this before, philosophers of old and historians of old have spoken about androgyny and androgyny is this confusion of, of, of sexes. This confusion of you know um, women looking like uh, men and men looking like women, and if you want to have a little bit of an indicator of whether or not that's the case today, all you need to do is have a look at the fashion parades in Milan. Just have a look at what men are being encouraged to wear in the fashion parades there, and you'll have a look at the direction that the world seems to be taking with respect to men and what their appearance need to be. Funnily enough, you can actually look at exactly the same thing and have a look at the women. And you'll see something incredible. Either they are wearing less and less, for which I don't understand how clothes designers could actually be paid for the lack of material that they employ in their clothing. Um, and, but if it's not that, then they are encouraged to look more like men. Or, most interestingly, boys. Young boys. And... My desire this morning is to give a consideration to what it is to be a man and to analyse ourselves in that particular light. And it's not an easy subject to address. It's not easy because many people have their own idea of what, what men should be, a picture of what men actually are. Um, there are standards in the world and there are standards by which we, we measure almost anything. Whether it's, um, whether it's weight or length or volume or area, levels, angles, um, even time has a standard. There are electronic um, things that need to be calibrated according to those particular standards. This is a way that we're able to compare a true line. There are museums around the world who have uh, what they refer to as a yardstick. Um, yardstick was always seen as a standard in the past. You'd measure up to a certain yardstick. And the yardstick was basically a measuring rod. 
and it was uh, three feet high and it's, um, and it's located in specific places around the world that people can actually check that is a yard. That is the measurement of one yard. Um, and it's exactly the same with regards to the metre rule. All of these things have standards. And when I was considering this for this morning's message, I thought, well, what is the standard of a man? Um, I'm certainly not the standard of what a man should be. And I don't think there are too many men who would picture themselves as a standard of what men should be. But we have in the scriptures an opportunity to behold the man and the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the standard by which we are to be measured by. The Bible says that the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, but we have for our own life the last Adam, and that is Christ, who was made a quickening spirit, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.45. He's our standard. He is our standard. He is the one who we are evaluated against as men and as fathers, naturally. Um, the scripture teaches that husbands, for example, are to be like Christ and to know how to love their wives. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We see the, the likeness of the man, the husband, to be like Christ who loved the church in Ephesians 5.25. Um, Jesus is our example with respect to our humble service. Jesus actually says, he says, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you in John 13, 14 and 15. So we see that Christ is our example of service. And he encourages us to emulate him, to be like him. He is the standard. He is the man. And he is the one that we are to behold. Jesus is our example when it comes to loving one another. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. He's our example even of suffering. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Again, he is the man, and he is the man who we are to behold as the example of and for every man. He's our example of selflessness. Paul wrote in, wrote in Romans 15, 2-3, he says, Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Again, we see the service that we are to service for our neighbours, for those who we care for. We are to do so even as Christ pleased not himself. In other words, we are to be selfless. And not selfish. We are to be thinking of others and not of ourselves. Just as Christ thought not of himself. Didn't please himself. In fact, there's really no part of our lives that we are not to do in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. John wrote in 1 John 2.6, he says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. In other words, he, that is you and I, um, who say that we abide in him, that is Christ, we ought to walk, we ourselves ought to walk even as he walked. 
So our manner of life is to be as Christ. He is the man. He is the man. And we are to behold the man. We are to look to him on the manner of life that we're going to be living. Turn your Bibles to to, uh, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 19. This is where we're going to be taking our text from this morning. As we enter into the message. What we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the full measure of a man. And it is him that we are to behold. John 19. And the first five verses we're going to be looking at there only. We're only going to be focusing on the last couple. And we see this. This is the time when the Lord Jesus Christ was put before Pontius Pilate. It's at the end of the Gospel of John, towards the end of the Gospel of John, that we find this text. Verse 1, chapter 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. An incredible text. It's the end of that account in the gospel. And I find myself also struggling because when I'm considering this particular text and I'm considering the Lord Jesus Christ as the example for all men, there is no way, there's, there's, there's just no way I could bring out every element of, of, of Christ. I, 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 was, I was shuddering to do so even just with this particular text. John wrote in his last sentence of the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, verse 25, he said, There are also many thing, many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And this is exactly the same trouble that I have. I, I, can't, I can't bring out everything of the Lord Jesus Christ and even the few things that, I, that I'm going to be bringing out this morning. I'm only scratching the surface and I don't, uh, I don't expect to be able to do anything better. But I think these four things that we see, even in this text that I can that I can expound from this text. So we're looking at the text before us this morning, and I'm going to be trying to bring out these four elements that I see evident in there. And the first thing that we see in him is that he is a man of integrity. He is a man of integrity. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him no fault there were charges laid against christ the evidence um the evidence that were there was so inept that even a a provincial pagan governor could recognize and could see that and could find no fault in christ the testimony of the roman governor was was simple he simply found no fault in christ Matter of fact, in another account, he washes his hands of, the, of, of any blame with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ and the conviction that they wanted for him. Pilate found Jesus innocent of all the charges that were laid against him by the Pharisees of the Jews. Pilate knew that it was for envy that they delivered him to him. 
Further to this, there was something really interesting because Matthew records the account that his wife had given of him of a dream that she had the previous night concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, telling him to have nothing to do with that just man, she said, in Matthew 27, 19. Well, there's a, there's a tip there as well for us as men that, that, that we are also charged to always consider, <coughs> excuse me, the, um, the wise counsel of our wives. We are to give those as a consideration in the things and the judgments that we are to do. And I think Pilate had that. Perhaps, perhaps that was it. You know, perhaps that was it for Pilate. You know, that was all that he needed, just those couple of things. that, that they, He knew that the Jews had a motivation to, to put Christ to death because if it was for envy that they delivered him. Um, and perhaps it was that, that, that precursor uh, from his wife, a dream that she had um, that gave him a conviction that he was indeed a just man, that there was no fault to be found in him. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. It's interesting because Jesus would give his life for the sins of the world, as the scriptures foretold. And I wonder if Pilate was also curious to know how it is that only a few days earlier, there were so many people who worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ. They worshipped him. They ushered him in as a king into the city, just as the scriptures foretold beforehand. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon the colt, a colt, the foal of an ass. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 9. He could... He would have seen that the people also cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest in Matthew 21, 9. Also in fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 26. Pilate didn't know the scriptures. There's no, there's no indication, at least, in the scriptures that he knew the scriptures. Um, but he would have simply been observing these things and he would have also been observing the incredible miracles that the Lord was renowned for doing as crowds followed him for three years of his ministry. So Pilate would have been aware that these people honoured Christ, worshipped Christ, and now just not long after, a few days after, he was brought before the people as, uh, as a king now all of a sudden he's being charged with, with, with crimes worthy of death. Um, so there's no doubt Pilate would have seen this. It's interesting though. This is an interesting consideration. Pilate was a pagan man. He was a pagan man. His religion included things like uh, bird watching. Not bird watching the way you and I would think of bird watching. The bird watching that he would have done would have been a religious act. It was, it was a system called augury. It was something where you would look at birds to see whether or not there was a favourable outcome to a particular event or whether it was a military exercise or anything like that. The word augury is, is used even today in the words such as, well, they frame the word such as auspicious. It was an auspicious occasion. In other words, it was a favourable occasion. Or the word inauspicious, which is an unfavourable occasion occasion it goes behind there it was a pagan word matter of fact in italian because it was a latin word in its origin in italian it's referred to as auguri auguri so we would often say to somebody tanti auguri which means many many blessings you have many many favors 
going to you. So that's where that word comes from. But he, as a pagan, was able to identify the Lord Jesus Christ as having no fault. He didn't know the scriptures, as far as we know. As a pagan, this is where he was. He, he didn't know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb of God, that he was a perfect man of integrity. Um, Jesus demanded, which of you convinceth me of sin? Speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, 46. Pilate um, could not have known really that the Lord Jesus Christ was sinless and yet he found no fault in him. Pilate would not have also known that the scriptures in the Old Testament speak of the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53 because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth in Isaiah 53, 8. Pilate would not have known that, yet he recognised that Jesus Christ must have been a just man. As a pagan, he seemed to recognise this. We know that Jesus was, was sinless, and I'm not going to go through all the scriptures that, that refer to that. It'll be diverting too far from the course that I'm into at the moment. But I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued that here we have a pagan man who found there was no fault in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find it really, really fascinating today that when you and I claim that we are Christians, people who know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ watch us and observe us and they speak of us as hypocrites because we should also have no fault. In their eyes, they're expecting us to be blameless. It's really fascinating because they don't expect that of any other religion. It doesn't matter whether any other pagan religious system out there, any other form of idolatry out there, they're not expecting this from, from Buddhists. They're not expecting this from Roman Catholics, not expecting this from, from Muslims. They're not expecting this from anybody else. But for some reason within their minds, having nothing, no other knowledge of the Bible, no other knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, really, we call ourselves Christians and these pagans are expecting us to have no fault, to be living lives of faultlessness to be living lives that are not blameworthy. We are seen in their eyes that we should be, if we are holding the characteristics of Christ in proper order, they discern that we are to be blameless. That we are to be blameless. And I find that absolutely fascinating. We know that from the scriptures. We, 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 we know what the Bible says with regards to this. We see that... Um, Paul himself was blameless before the law. He speaks about that. When both Timothy and Titus were charged to find a pastor to pastor churches, they were also told to look for those who were blameless. We who belong to Christ are also charged to be blameless. 1 Corinthians 1.8, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you are to be found. Peter wrote, be diligent that ye may be found in him, uh, of him in peace without spot and blameless. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. That's our charge. We are to be men of integrity. Are you a man of integrity? Are you a man who identifies Christ? Is that evident to the world? When the, when the world sees us and hears us speak, do our, does our mouth testify to Christ without hypocrisy? Do they see us as blameless? 
Well, this is a question that we need to be asking ourselves. Because if the world sees our mouth testifying the opposite of Christ, they don't find no fault within us. They they find us blameworthy. And that's not picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are one of his and you belong to him, then there should be control of the mouth. The mouth is just the first part. The other part of it is the body. How we act, how we behave, the things that we do. You've heard the expression before, do as I say, don't do as I do. Well, that's not the picture of Christ. He didn't just say he did. He didn't just say he did. He said, do as I do. Not do as I say, do as I do. You are to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be a man of integrity, as Christ is a man of integrity. Do your actions confess Christ? Or by your actions, do you blaspheme him? That's a great question to ask. If the pagan man found Jesus to have no fault, barely knowing him, should we be surprised that it is the general expectation of the world towards his disciples? That is the general expectation of the world towards his disciples. One of the most famous catchphrases that we find in the world today is that Christians are hypocrites. Why? Because they're not living the life that the pagan world assumes within them we should be living. Nobody charges any other religious people who follow another religious system of such a thing. Nobody. But they watch you. They watch you very carefully. Behold the man. I can think of no better man to emulate integrity than the Lord Jesus Christ. So be honest in all of your dealings. Be consistent in your speech. Live life blameless in the eyes of the world and let the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shine in you, especially in these days. Don't give yourself an excuse to sin. Don't give yourself an excuse to demonstrate a life and a characteristic, anything other than that which you see in Christ. That is a man. The definition of a man we see in the Lord Jesus Christ a man of integrity, regardless of what he thinks might come upon him, he will not do this or that. He will not take bribes. He will not behave in ways that are going to be contrary to that good conscience that he has. He is a man of integrity. Secondly, we see that Christ is also a man of suffering. Verse 4 of our text and 5, Pilate says, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. John 19, 4 and 5. Pilate told the people first, we recognise in verse 4, that there was no fault in Christ and he found no fault in Christ. But in verse 1 it also tells us that Pilate took Jesus and scourged him scourged him in Luke 23 14 speaking of the same account this is really interesting um, Pilate tells the Jews I have examined him before you have and have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him the method of examination of these barbaric Romans was was via a method of scourging that was just one of the methods In other words, the method of public lashing with a cord or a series of cords 
with interwoven metal or bone fragments. It was, a, it was a form of torture that was designed specifically to tear the flesh. So this manner of inquiry of, of Christ was not one that was limited to words alone, in other words. Consider in your Bibles Acts chapter 22. You'll see where I get this from and an understanding of how this examination is also undertaken through scourging. Acts chapter 22. In Acts chapter 21, Paul made this request of the chief captain who bound him that he might have a moment to speak unto the Jews. And, and in chapter 22, Paul does so, and he speaks to the Jews in the Hebrew tongue. And by verse 22, they refused his witness, and they demanded his death. And so in verse 24, we've got this record. Acts chapter 22, verse 24. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that you might know whereof they cried so against him. He goes on to say in verse 25, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? See, the examination of Christ was one of the torture of scourging. Sadly, unlike Paul, Jesus could not claim that Roman legal protection of citizenship. The Jews being a subjugated people, there was no such legal or human rights afforded to them as there was for Paul. Paul was a very peculiar case because Paul was born free. He was born free. The, re the reference to being a citizen of Rome is a reference of freedom, reference of freedom. Because when he had that opportunity again to be scourged, um, he said, you know, he, he told them, it's a right for you to do this. And um, the Roman centurion, whoever the chief was, the captain that, that came to him, he said, uh, is it true that you are a, a, a Roman? And he says, yes. And he says, with much cost, I obtained this freedom. And Paul says, but I was free born. And that wasn't the case for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could be scourged simply at the will of the governor. No condemnation needed to be found in him for him to be scourged. Now we see that it's not just the physical suffering that takes our attention. We recognise the Lord suffered physically. We see it in his, um, in his prayer before the Father in, in the Gospel of Luke where he sweated blood. We know and recognise that there was incredible suffering that he was going to endure. But it wasn't just that. A famous chapter of Isaiah 53 takes our attention and it says that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This man of sorrows is one who would be afflicted for us, for us. He was a man of suffering and a man of sorrows. Verses 4 and 5 give the reasoning for it in Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Such a gorgeous picture of the gospel. I mean, to, to, to think that, that, that the God had, had given us his son, 
that he may be afflicted for our cause, that he would suffer, that we may be free, that he would suffer, that we may be uncondemned before a holy God. If we believe in what the Lord Jesus Christ did, this is a picture of the gospel in perfect form. 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was even born, came into the world as a child. An incredible picture. But what sorrow, what sorrow it is in the days that we live that we think that our life is to be defined by a life of leisure. Men today don't, don't think that their life should be one that uh, not only be defined as a time of, of, of suffering, especially for the sake of others, we'll talk about sacrifice in a moment, but, but we, on, the, on the opposite to that, our life is to be one of complete leisure. And this is the idea that many men have. This is the state of most men today in the West. We think that the purpose of our life is one of leisure and continuing prosperity without a single hint of suffering. Without a single hint of suffering. And when men suffer today, they melt. They melt. They go to pieces. True men are expected to endure suffering as Christ endured suffering. True men are to do so from time to time. It's not a constant state, just as Jesus Christ didn't suffer in a constant state. Okay? But it is not something that we are to expect, that we are not ever to endure. We are to endure suffering, and we are to do so and not faint. Not faint. What sort of man is it that melts under the trials and afflictions? We've got a trials and afflictions today. We've got them. They're there. Take them on board and be the man. We have, we have, if you're a father, then hopefully you also have a wife that is by your side. She needs a shoulder to cry on. What a shame it is that a man needs to cry on his wife's shoulder when it should be the other way around. Men have broad shoulders for a reason, you know. And it's not that they would you know, plonk their head on it. It's there for the sake of their wives and for the blessings of their children. They need to be strong. They need to endure. They cannot faint. They cannot whimper. This is not a man. A man needs to be strong. He needs to endure these afflictions. He needs to take it in his teeth and go with it. He needs to make decisions that need to be made and still run with it. He needs to be strong and he needs to be seen as strong. He needs to be seen as the example for his children that his children may follow. And today, though, men don't. Men wimp and they melt at the slightest trial, the slightest sign of difficulty, and all of a sudden they're sucking like little children. It makes me personally sick. I understand that there's troubles. I understand that, that people have problems. But I, 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 find it, I find it disgusting to see that men would not stand for the things that are right. They have no courage. No courage to stand for the things that are true. No courage to be willing to stand alone if need be. And, and, and sadly, this is actually not just a modern state. This is something that is seen throughout all history. Okay, It's a thing that stands throughout all history, that, that it was always the select men. The men that we hear of today are the men who are willing to stand alone. They knew what was right. They knew what was true. And they were willing to stand alone, though the entire world accuse them and what do we see of Christ as a lamb before his shearer was dumb and he opened not his mouth he didn't see a need to testify of his innocence he didn't see a need to defend himself 
He says, the things that I do, they testify of me. Look at the works that I have done and see whether, whether or not they are of God. I don't, you don't need the testimony of my lips. My actions, my work demonstrate to you that I am a man of no fault, a man of integrity. So he didn't see a need to defend himself. Interestingly, because the Bible refers to us as Christians as sheep led to the slaughter. You know, we're, we're, we're referred to in the same way. Beloved, there's going to come a time, potentially within your lives, that you will be persecuted, that you will have trouble, that you will have difficulties. But if you are whimpering over the difficulties only of today, and indeed the difficulties today are not, they're not to be, uh, they're not to be discarded. They're fairly serious. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denying them. But at this stage, you still have food in your bellies. You still have shelter over your head. You may have lost income. You may have lost your business, but that's not your life. You're not defined by those things. And yet today we have people dealing with themselves and taking their own lives simply because of the loss of income and money, which is a real tragedy. These are not men. These are not men. What will come of you when times get tougher? Favourite passage we've mentioned so often lately in Jeremiah 12.5. If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? Great point. If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, how are you going to contend with horses? If you're finding the difficulties right now unbearable, how would you contend when things actually are affecting you personally? How will the Christian deal with the things in the West when real persecution comes? Paul touched on real persecutions and he counted it a blessed thing to suffer for Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7, he says this as he introduces the gospel of God to the Corinthians by letter. He said, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation." that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation." And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. We are going to be consoled. We are going to have a peace and a joy. This week I read um, Richard Warbrand's uh, biography called Tortured for Christ. It was a book that he wrote in three days. And he wrote of it after he had been uh, freed from his 14 years of trial and imprisonment in a communist prison. He speaks about enduring portions of the Second World War under Hitler's regime and the national socialist endeavour of adult Hitler and the sufferings that he endured with regards to that. But he said nothing, nothing could compare him for the trials and the affliction of the communist system under the, under the Russians that was imposed upon him in Romania. He said that was greater evil than anything that he experienced with regards to the, uh, the Nazi regime. And he writes about his experience in a communist prison for 14 years. 
He says this. He's in prison. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners, as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. This is really interesting. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. He goes on and he says, The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to, to the other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And he continued his gospel message. That's an interesting consideration, you know. It was the privilege of preaching, the privilege of doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that compelled these men. And they did so regardless of what they were going to endure. And they did not stop. They continued doing it. Peter spoke about it when him and another apostle fled um, and were let free from, from being um, beaten or being, or being persecuted for Christ's sake. And they counted themselves blessed. And it's really interesting how many accounts and biography, biographical accounts I've heard of other individuals who also thought they were blessed for being persecuted and suffering for Christ's sake. As he also suffered, so should we suffer. We have current trials and they are difficult. Paul wrote in Romans 8.29 that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. And being conformed, we recognise that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We will also become men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It is something that is going to be a part of our life if we are living faithful in Christ. Paul spoke about it without any question whatsoever. He says, all who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's not a question of if or maybe. You shall suffer persecution. Suck it up. Suck it up. That's our work. That's our role. That's our experience as men, and this is part of our lives. I remember the, uh, a card that my wife gave to her son, to my son, uh, when he was in football, and uh, he, oh, I can't remember what did, broke his wrist, or was it, was it in the rugby? No, she wrote on his plaster, with, with sport comes injury, suck it up. You know? Well, that's exactly the same for us. It's the same thing for us. As men, as men who are to endure these days, you know, living for Christ comes suffering and we need to suck it up. We need to deal with it and we need to move on. Fathers, grandfathers, it is incumbent upon you to be strong, to endure, to be men. And as Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So to do so well, we are to do so and not faint. And in order to do so, beloved, we are to behold the man. We are to look at Christ as our example. We are to behold him and walk in his light and be strong. Thirdly, Jesus was a man of sacrifice. He was a man of sacrifice. 
Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said unto, unto them, Behold the man. A crown of thorns. This crown of thorns is going to, it will go down through history to tell the world that he is a man of sacrifice. The crown of thorns is an incredible image. It's, it's one that began in mockery and would end up as the greatest symbol of sacrifice that would have its completion only in the cross. It was a sacrifice for you and for me. This man of suffering, this man of sorrows that Isaiah spoke of is also the man of sacrifice. And it's through his stripes that we are healed, that we are healed. As I says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Goes on, he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Isaiah 53, 6-8. We look at this and we wonder, this sacrifice, what motivated it? Well, there's something that goes behind the sacrifice, you see. And I see it in mothers very, very often. I don't see it in fathers anywhere near as much as I should be seeing it. And it's a sacrifice that's always motivated by love. The sacrifice is motivated by love. Jesus Christ left his throne, was born as a man, suffered for the sins of the world, and for the first time in eternity past, he feels forsaken from his father. He did this as a sacrifice that was motivated by love. Hebrews 9, 26 to 28 says, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus Christ was a man of sacrifice. He gave his life for the salvation of the world. And it was all that love could do. It's not the fact of Christ being a man of sacrifice that we behold him. It's what compelled him. It's what compelled him and that is love. It intrigues me today that the world belittles love in men. Um, and it's typical of Satan's devices to distort things, to distort the picture of a man. A man in the Bible is considered the one who is the head of his home, the head of his family. He has authority imbued within him. And because of that within him, Satan does his best to, to defile man, to trip him up, to, 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 to create dispersions against man and to apply. Man is just a carnal creature. He's a carnal, fleshly sort of creature. There's no natural love in him. But in the woman, there's the natural love only. And we see that reflected in, in cases every day around the world where people separate, husbands and wives separate. The children are almost automatically by default given to the, the wife, the mother, as if she is the only one that is capable of loving her children. But this is not the case. This is not the case. Men love and men have as their example the man that they are to behold in Christ. 
There can be no sacrifice without love. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is a picture of sacrifice. This is a picture of Christ. And what about you? What about you, Father? What about you? You have children. You have older children. You're a grandfather. How can you better show your love to your children but by sacrifice? There's one area, there's one area that I just wanted to touch on really quickly because I could, oh, I could deal with so many different, different points. But are you willing to, to give up some time of work to spend in the rearing of your children? It's a fascinating thing, you know, this idea, because men are spoken of as the ones who are rearing their children more often than women in the Bible. It's men that teach their children. It's men who are charged to discipline their children. This is men that are to do these particular things. Men are to be the example for their children. And we see the opposite of that today. We see that men go off, they go to work, they come home, spend no time with their children, no time listening to them, no time talking to them, no time playing with them, no time kicking the footy or doing anything else with them. But they spend their time, they come home, they put their feet up, watch the telly, and mum looks after the children. That's their job, they say. They've done their job. They've done their eight hours. You know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, whatever it is, I really don't care. You know, the fact of the matter is they spend so little time with their children. These men are selfish. They are not thinking of sacrifice. They are not thinking of sacrificing time in the endeavour of raising their children. There is a, an interesting consideration, you know, with children. They have an interesting way of spelling a particular word. And it's a word that they don't necessarily spell in their mind. They spell it in their heart. And when it comes to a child, a child spells the word love for their, from their father simply, uh, simply T-I-M-E. You know, that's how they spell love. And they spell it that way in their heart. And when the father spends time with his children, that is something that is a sacrifice for him but is a blessing for them. And it's a sacrifice that will end up in a wonderful consolation in the future because they will have an ongoing and wonderful relationship with their children. It's time. It's time. Spending time with your children. It might seem like a small comparison to that of Christ, but I'm sure that as we grow to emulate Jesus in all things, we are going to find a multitude of areas through which we are to sacrifice. But for that of our children, time is a sacrifice through which many blessings flow and will continue to flow. It's been said that there are no men who come to the end of their lives and say, my only regret is that I did not spend more time on my career. I don't know of any man that would have ever said that. I don't think you'll find anything like that written on any tombstone. You know, Nor will you think or find any man to have ever had that as a regret. A man that has had children would almost always, if they were going to regret anything, it would be that related to their children. And it's a real sorrow. But it's not too late. It's not too late. There is opportunity for all men to turn in this. There's an opportunity for all men to turn and to spend that time with their children. And if you're a grandfather and the time of rearing your children is over, it's still not too late. It's still not too late. It's opportunity to repent to turn 
and to fall in love with your grandchildren and bless your children as a result. If you're a young father, you'll do well to learn this. If you're a middle-aged father, you'll do well to turn and to bless your children and do that now. Do that, bless them with your time now. But there's one sacrifice that I need to put before you that is more valuable than all of them and it's found in Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 to 5. This sacrifice is ours and this is all of ours. But if we are to behold Christ, then this is the sacrifice we are to give. Romans 12, 1 to 5, Paul begins this chapter. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to, unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as Christ, as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. The context here is vital. We are called to give our entire lives as a living sacrifice to Christ for his will as part of his body, the church. As part of his body. We are to abandon the thoughts of our own selves and we are to dedicate ourselves to others. We are one, one people, one body, one organism. And we are to be sacrificing our love, our, our personal desires, our selfish endeavours to that of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our last passage. This morning we see Christ as a man of purpose. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto him, Behold the man. We have beheld the man as a man of integrity, as the man of suffering, as the man of sacrifice, and now we come to see him as a man of purpose. They did not know what they were doing when they plaited the crown of thorns and when they dressed him in a purple robe and they kneeled and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They didn't know. But Jesus knew and he never wavered from his purpose. Go back one, one chapter. If you're in chapter 19 of John, go back to chapter 18 and have a look at this. He is before Pilate. And Jesus is answering Pilate's questions in verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and saith unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, and I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore saith unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, 
and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Here we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very truth, the personification of truth, standing before Pontius Pilate. And he looks at truth in the face and he asks the question immediately after this text and says, what is truth? What is truth? And just as the pagans back then didn't know what truth is, nor do the pagans today identify truth, though the truth can be looking them in the face. Jesus came to bear a witness, a testimony to the truth. He was a man of purpose. He had a focus and he had a focus in life through which he did not waver. Luke 19.10 says that for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Bearing witness to the truth also bear witness, bears witness to the, faith, to the fact that there are many who are lost and Christ came to seek and to save them. That is where, that's how you and I were found. That's how you and I were found. We were lost. We were, past tense, lost. Now we are found. We're found by Christ. We didn't find ourselves. Everybody seems to be looking for themselves today. You know, we didn't find ourselves. We were found by Christ. That is in the past. We are found because someone saw it as their single purpose to share Christ with us, to pray for us. And now we have a treasure in heaven that far exceeds anything that we can ever have on earth. You see, there was somebody else who saw the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ and they beheld the man and then they decide that they were going to emulate that purpose for their own lives because so they are called. They are called to be disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. They recognize that their single purpose in life could have no greater value than changing the eternal aspect of every individual that they would speak to. Imagine that for a moment. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine being able to share the gospel with somebody. Imagine watching them and they believe it in their heart and you see them turn from death to life right before your eyes. Right before your eyes. And I've experienced this, not very often, but I have experienced this, where an individual is saved right there. And you had something to do with it. You have given to that individual the greatest treasure that could ever be given. You have given to them eternal life. If their sin has been accepted as taken by Christ, they are now born again, they are new creatures, and they have eternal life to look forward to. Imagine, imagine having something to do with that. Imagine having something to do with that. You might not have seen that. That might not have been evident for you, but I can tell you right now, that should be the single purpose of our lives. Jesus came to do that very thing. He was a focused man. That was all that he was focused on. He wasn't concerned. Notice something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice something also with regards to all the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They never saw it within their nature to petition government to change pagan laws and rules. They never saw it within their scope of employment under Christ to free slaves, to do this, to emancipate this and to do... They didn't see that as something that was part of their calling. They were there to seek and to save that which is lost. They were masters of one thing and one thing only and that was to be focused on the effort of salvation to all people. Australia is a funny nation. 
we've got a, we've got some interesting phrases that we've used, and, and, and I've shared this this before. We've um, we've had that phrase of of thinking that uh, we can't be perfect really at anything, and um, and people who are good at a few things but not perfect at anything are always considered as a jack of all trades but a master of none, you know. And uh, we don't realise that that is a misquote by Benjamin Franklin who actually said that every man ought to be a jack of all trades but a master of one. We are to be a jack of all trades but a master of one. And I would put to you that if you are called as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one endeavour that you want to master more than anything else is the sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if not the sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ audibly, then the praying for the souls of those who would be saved by those who will share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a focus. And if you are focused in this endeavour, everything that goes on in the world pales into insignificance. You can be persecuted, you can be beaten for preaching the gospel of Christ and all that is just a side issue. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't take away your ability to do so. And the Lord said that, you know, why don't, don't fear men who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul. You know, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. That's not our fear as Christians, but it certainly is the fear of the world today who is lost. If you're a Christian, sacrifice your time and a career that promises fortune. And the fortune that you need to be settling for needs to be the one that's in eternally, eternity. If you are... If you are Focusing on the fortunes of this world, then you're settling on that which will pass away. If you're a Christian and the director of even a multinational enterprise and you've got your focus on building the greatest company in the world, then let me tell you with all assurance, you're settling for crumbs. You're settling for crumbs. If you are called to preach the gospel, don't stop along the way to be a king, as Charles Spurgeon once said. You have entrusted you've been entrusted with the most eternally fulfilling privilege of all history and what a prize it is. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine being able to watch somebody turn to Christ. Learn how to share the gospel. Fathers, your first call of ministry is to share the gospel with your children. It's gospel sharing 101. You naturally love your children. You naturally desire them to be saved. Matter of fact, I know as a father, I've often thought to myself, if I knew that all my children were saved, the Lord could take me home right now. You know, I'd be happy. I would see myself as having my objective absolutely fulfilled that all my children are saved and know Christ. That would be, and that certainly was, the one thing that I wanted to make sure would happen within my family. Um, And if you happen to still be here, as I am, then clearly your work's not done yet. Your work's not done yet. You've got more things to do. Become a master at sharing the gospel. Do you need to learn science to share the gospel? No, you don't need to learn science to share the gospel. Do you need to learn philosophy to share the gospel? No, you don't need to learn philosophy to share the gospel. Beloved, you need only to be honest. You need to be honest with what Jesus has done for you in saving you from your sin. And you must be willing to suffer, to suffer contempt and to even be ridiculed. 
And you need to have enough love in your heart to sacrifice your pride and your time. And you must have a single-minded purpose to know why you are still here for such a time as this. So there you have it. You need to be honest. You need to be a man of integrity. You need to be willing to suffer. You need to be a man of suffering. You need to be willing to sacrifice. You need to love enough to sacrifice your time and your efforts. You need to be a man of sacrifice. And you need to have the gospel as your primary focus of life because that is the reason you are still here. And that is the command that the Lord had given us. You need to be a man of purpose. And who do we need to behold? We need to behold Christ. We need to become like him. These are what we are to behold in the man Jesus. This is what you were created to become. This is the man. The last thought this morning is simply this. We are living in the most unique time of history. We are living today in the most unique time of history and men need to be men without distraction. Without distraction. There's a legend that accompanies the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It fell to the Ottoman Empire and the legend might indeed very well be true. It certainly applies in this day. When Sultan Muhammad II surrounded Constantinople in 1453, making decisions on how to divide the Balkans and Greece to either be retain their Christian faith or to convert to Islam for the next few centuries, while he was doing so and he had a force that was ready to subjugate the people stronger than Constantinople has ever had in their history, a local church council in the besieged city discussed the following problems. What colour were the eyes of the Virgin Mary? What gender do the angels have? If a fly falls into sanctified water, is the fly sanctified or the water defiled? So it is today. So it is today. There are wicked and evil men, billionaires and organisations that are surrounding the Western world today to look at how they are going to destroy it and create a phoenix from it. And while they are doing that, we're worried about pronouns. While they're doing that, we're worried about whether or not we should define whether a child is a boy or a girl at birth. Not by looking at their anatomy, but by waiting for them to, to perhaps come up with their own decision. We're worried about likes on Facebook. We're worried about getting enough approval on YouTube. We're worried about getting people to actually like us and we find ourselves getting offended at the most stupidest little things in the world. All the while there are men set to destroy this civilization, and men are following suit. It is not a time. It is not a time, beloved. It is not a time to be worried about these things. It is a time to be a man. It is a time to grow as men. It is a time to behold the Lord Jesus Christ as the representation of what a man actually is. We are charged to occupy until he comes. To occupy until he comes. Maranatha, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for this day. Thank you, Father, for the wonder of God and for the wonderful joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for setting him as our example, dear Lord. 
And I pray that you would give us the courage as men to be men. I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to be strong in the knowledge of Christ. And also, dear Lord, to be changed and transformed. And to repent, dear Father, of our own distractions. And to turn to the Lord and to be the men that we were created to be. I ask you, dear Father, you would bless all fathers. Fathers that are and fathers that are to be. I pray, dear Father, that you would bless them abundantly. Help them be strong in the knowledge of Christ and to grow in Christ for such a time as this. We are privileged, dear Lord, to be living in this time. We are chosen for one reason or another to be the ones that should endure this time. We should look at it as by design. And I pray, dear Father, we would look at our life as having a single-minded purpose. We thank you again and ask you, dear Lord, bless us continually, strengthen us in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.